RTHK for news. Local, regional, international stories. All day. It does have a ballistic missile program. Around the clock. The policy, in fact. Reversal the economy. And we are working in that direction. The RTHK Newsroom, the best informed team. Keeping you up to date with daily half-hour bulletins and dedicated programs. Many of these procedures from a political point of view. It's not a big deal. You're in touch with the current affairs of the day. AM, FM, online and digital. RTHK for news. Good morning to our listeners on RTHK Radio 3. This is China Takes Over the World, and I am Ying Ma. We are excited to have with us today two noted economists to talk about the internationalization of the Chinese currency, also known as the yuan or the renminbi. Our guests are Barry Eichengreen, the George C. Pardee and Helen N. Pardee Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley, and Ronald McKinnon, the William D. Eberly Professor Professor of International Economics at Stanford University. Barry and, and Ron, a big welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's nice to be here. Well, ever since the uh, global financial crisis began, there's been much talk about the internationalization of the renminbi, and Beijing sees this as a step toward less dependence on the dollar standard. Ron, you actually don't think that the internationalization of the renminbi is a very good idea for China right now. Uh, please tell us why. Well, the, um, there's a paradox. The U.S. behaves very badly with zero interest rates, which makes it impossible for China to internationalize the RMB without being flooded out by inflows of hot money. So China cannot free up its domestic capital markets as long as U.S. interest rates remain, short-term rates, remain near zero. So there, there's a big problem. Sure, sure. Barry, you once joked that, that whatever position Professor Ron McKinnon takes on a particular issue, you're likely to believe the exact opposite. Do you feel that way about this issue? Yeah, I think uh, renminbi internationalization is a desirable goal. It will take the country quite a while, 10 or 20 years, to make significant progress in that direction. So... Uh, Zero interest rates in the United States are not going to last for 20, 10 or 20 years. Thinking longer term, uh, I hope that China continues to open its financial markets to the rest of the world very gradually um, over a period of years. And if it does, um, it can do so safely. Among other things, the era of zero interest rates will then be over. So, so is your suggestion that they should slowly open up now, even while zero interest rates are going on, but then they would be more prepared to do so in a more full-blown manner, perhaps when the United States and other industrialized countries are no longer engaged in quantitative easing? I think renminbi internationalization is like other Chinese policy. It proceeds by very slowly feeling the stones beneath the water as you cross the river, and that's true here as well. Task number one is to develop China's own financial markets, to make them deeper and more liquid and more efficient over time. As progress is made on that task, it becomes safer to 
open them to the rest of the world. I think that's the appropriate sequencing here, but Professor McKinnon is the master of sequencing. <laughs> Now, Professor McKinnon, I think um, you've also written that one of the reasons why you feel the, the, that internationalization of the renminbi should not occur now is in part due to the underdeveloped uh, Chinese capital markets. Uh, so do you agree with what Professor Eichengreen just said about the need to open up China's capital markets in order to, to get to internationalization of the currency? Well, looking at, as Barry does, being a good economic historian, 20 years hence, yes. But they, the paradox is they can't open up now because of this hot money uh, flow from the U.S. And they have to maintain capital controls on inflows um, to avoid being swamped. And the, they also have to repress domestic interest rates on formal bank deposits and loans uh, so that they minimize this capital inflow. So you get a form of domestic financial repression, if you like, because of the zero interest rates in the U.S. And this, as much as anything, is leading to the explosion of unregulated shadow banking in China where the banks can't raise formal interest rates, but they set up wealth management institutions encouraging their uh, wealthiest people to shift deposits to these uh, wealth management um, groups. And then they lend out at much higher interest rates but with the loans off the books of the formal banks. Right. Well, this is very interesting because you're blaming China's financial depression and the development of the shadow banking industry on the uh, U.S. Federal Reserve and its easy money policy. Professor Eichengreen, do you agree with that? In, in this case, no. I think <laughs> um, China, surprise, China uh, can and is deregulating domestic interest rates, and I would like to see it move even faster in that direction uh, than it has to date so that more money stays in the formal banking system and less floods into the shadow banking system. I don't think Fed policy has any relevance to the question of whether China can move faster now to uh, Um, lift the ceilings on, on deposit and, and, and lending rates internally or not. And, and let me just add one more interesting fact here, that capital is on net flowing out of China at the moment. The renminbi is weakening. And as your listeners will know, it's down almost 2% from its levels in, in January. Yes, yes. And, and I do want to get to that, uh, get your views On, on that in just a moment, but but sticking with 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 this earlier question, um, there are lots of other people who who would say that financial repression in China began well before the uh, 2007-2008 financial crisis, well before the United States Federal Reserve started with its zero interest rates. And so can we really blame the United States for the type of financial repression that China is engaged in? Or is there some, and, and I, I believe other economists and, and I Professor Eigengreen, you may have even been one of them. I'm, I'm not sure you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe other economists have actually said that the reason why China engages in financial rep repression is because it has this very unbalanced currency exchange rate. Um, uh, Professor uh, McKinnon, your, your thoughts on that? 
Okay. Well, China is had a state-run financial system. The big banks are state-owned, and for a long time, the People's Bank of China set interest rates, and it always tried to set them so that the deposit rate was about three percentage points less than the loan rate, so banks could continue as intermediaries. Uh, but this is done on its own, and it's a form of financial repression. But the even lower interest rates now are due to this external pressure uh, from the United States having um, zero interest rates, actually. So I'm not denying they didn't control interest rates earlier, but now the fact that the whole structure of interest rates is too low, encouraging shadow banking, um, is because of this fear of hot money flows from the U.S. into the formal banking system. Professor Eigengreen? I think um, China has interest rate ceilings now for the same reason it had interest rate ceilings in the past, because the banking system has been used as a vehicle to channel funds in certain directions towards state-owned enterprises, toward heavy industry, toward manufacturing, toward certain municipalities. The price mechanism hasn't been used in the past in China to decide who borrows and who doesn't. Government direction has. And I, I, I think there is still an element of that at work today. Um, what China needs to, to do is continue to restructure in in the direction of a more market-oriented economy. And a way to do that is to lift these ceilings on uh, interest rates and at the same time to strengthen the supervision and regulation of the financial system so that if more money comes in from the outside or from anywhere else, it is lent, it is intermediated responsibly. And, and what do you both think about the Chinese central bank act actively pushing down the value of the renminbi in recent days? Well, the Chinese, this is McKinnon speaking, <laughs> the Chinese uh, government has been faced with an avalanche of hot money so far in 2014 coming in and very nervous about the one-way bet They've given speculators in the foreign exchange market that the RMB always rises, um, maybe slowly. So they wanted to interrupt this one-way bet and have a surprise depreciation of uh, 1% to 2%. It's very small, actually. It made headlines in the Western press, but this depreciation is tiny um, and doesn't affect foreign trade much. But it does affect carry traders who are... Uh, speculating on these interest differentials, and some of them have taken uh, substantial losses because of this surprise devaluation. But I think the People's Bank of China will lose out of this policy in the future because they are, remain committed to slow appreciation, and that will resume in a few weeks, I'm sure. Professor Eigengreen, do you agree that the slow appreciation will continue? You know, when I think about recent movements in uh, uh, the currency, I'm reminded of that uh, famous Chinese politician and the comment about the French Revolution that's too early to tell 
what the effects are. Um, I, I one, believe one, that famous politician was Zhou Enlai, the、uh, first premier <laughs> of modern China. <laughs> in, indeed. So one interpretation is the one Professor McKinnon just give, gave, and I am inclined in,、uh, to agree that the People's Bank of China wants to see、uh, more currency variability, so there are no one-way bets for investors. Another possible interpretation is that the economy is slowing more. Than、uh, they want, and this is a way to boost Chinese exports. That would not be such a happy in- interpretation. But I, I, I do think the right order in which to proceed here is develop China's own own financial markets by deregulating interest rates and strengthen supervision and regulation. Second, you do want a more flexible exchange rate to eliminate one-way bets. And then it becomes safe to further open、uh, the country's financial markets to the rest of the world and internationalize the currency. So I think all these things go together, and Chinese policymakers hopefully understand how they go together. Uh, uh, Professor McKinnon, do I understand from your remarks earlier that you feel that because of the actions of, of central banks from the From from the developed world, that China actually cannot undertake some of the reforms it needs to take to liberalize its its capital markets and and and, and conduct the reforms that it needs to conduct. Am I am I right about that? That's right. That's the correct interpretation. The U.S. is actually preventing the liberalization Chinese capital markets by, and it's also the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, and the ECB. By keeping world interest rates far too low for China's benefit, actually, China need is a, a really exuberant economy with high investment. The natural rate of interest is much higher.、Uh, well, but it, but is is everybody here supposed to operate in China's best interest? Would it be what what? Well, maybe I should ask the question in a different way. What would happen if China were to liberalize its capital markets right now, given the circumstances that we have in the other other countries? I would be flooded out with hot money. But let me answer your first question before you change the question. What, what, should, <laughs> what should China do now? They have this hot money inflow. They worry about it. Now, if they took away the threat that of future RMB appreciation altogether, and just stabilized their rate at whatever it is this morning, six point one four yuan per dollar. And even better announced, we're never going to change it upward in the future. We're just going to stick with 6.14, plus or minus one percent around the central rate. Then that would take away much of the incentive for hot money to flow in. But because of the large interest differential, you'd still need capital controls on inflows into the、uh, Chinese market. But some of the pressure would come off. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll get Professor Eigen Green's response when we come back. We、uh, are going to resume this conversation about the internationalization of the Renminbi with Professor Ron McKinnon of Stanford University and Professor Barry Eigen Green of the University of California, Berkeley.
Welcome back to China Takes Over the World on RTHK Radio 3. I am Ying Ma, and we continue our discussion now with Ron McKinnon, Professor of International Economics at Stanford University, and Barry Eichengreen, Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, uh, Barry, do you would would you like to respond to Ron's last comment? Well, there are, are a couple of interesting issues here. One is. If China opened up its financial markets to the rest of the world, would capital flow in or flow out?、Um, and I don't think the answer is at all clear. On the one hand, Ron is entirely right that interest rates are higher in China than in the advanced economies. On the other hand, there is a tremendous appetite on the part of、uh, Chinese households and corporations to. Better diversify their holdings of assets to hold not only China Chinese assets but to hold foreign assets as well. So nobody knows、uh, whether more capital would flow in or flow out. The International Monetary Fund has done studies of this. They don't know, but their conclusion is capital would flow out on balance. The Bank for International Settlements in Basel doesn't know the answer, but their conclusion on the basis of studies is that on net. Capital would flow out because of this suppressed appetite of Chinese investors for、uh, foreign financial assets. The other other point I would make, real quickly, is that you asked about financial liberalization of China and what its effects would be. And again, I want to draw a really strong distinction between domestic financial liberalization and development. On the one hand, all to the good, overdue. Can be pursued now, and opening those markets to the rest of the world, which is an entirely different story, which needs to proceed slowly and cautiously after the domestic financial system has been strengthened. What connection do you see between the、um, financial repression that we talked about earlier、um, and the currency exchange rate? Well,、oh, sorry, go ahead, Barry. I know we have a few more minutes left with、okay. uh, Professor Eigengreen before he has to go,、um, but perhaps so. Perhaps we can just take advantage of of your presence with us for the next few minutes. Yeah, I think uh, the uh, the currency exchange rate between、uh, the renminbi and the the dollar is guided by the the People's Bank of China. The PBOC understands that the days when it could rigidly Peg that exchange rate within a plus or minus one percent band are coming to an end, or they should have ended in the past.、Um, so it,、uh, we we are moving toward a, a situation where the cur- currency will be more flexible. Is the Fed responsible for that? No, the PBOC is responsible for that. Professor McKinnon. Well, <clears throat> Professor Eichengreen is right about some uncertainty. As to which way capital would flow if China dismantled all its、uh, restrictions on international capital movements, and there's now some indication that direct investment out of China into the rest of the world is quite high, and direct investment inward and outward is about balanced actually in terms of magnitude. But I doubt that Chinese.、Um, Capitalists want to、um, build up their do- stocks of dollar zero interest assets anytime soon. The financial flow will always be into China, but the direct 
so could be out. Well, uh, let me shift gears a little bit. Um, In recent days, we've, um, and and actually recent months, we've heard a a lot about the swap agreement that the Chinese central bank has inked with central banks in other countries, such as in the UK, South Korea, with um, the EU uh, and and Brazil, I believe, and Hong Kong. Um, What are your thoughts on those um, agreements and do you think that they will, uh, in fact, do a whole lot to further the interla- internationalization of their NNB? Well, I think I, I think they're largely of symbolic value. The idea behind them is that the Bank of England will allow banks and firms in the UK to do business in renminbi only if it can lend renminbi to those banks and firms if they need it in exceptional circumstances. The Bank of England can't print renminbi, so it signs an agreement with the PBOC to get it to get them when it needs them. Um, I don't think anybody sees the, the need to activate those swap agreements anytime soon, but they, are, they constitute useful symbolism. Professor McKinn? Yes, it is symbolism, and uh, you know it, most of the agreements are with other Asian countries, like Thailand and so forth. But since the world's on a dollar standard, and where dollars are needed in the foreign exchange market if there are, are crises, the, these uh, swap agreements with RMB aren't particularly useful. They're symbolic, but they're, I don't think any of them have been drawn on, actually, in recent years. So uh, do you think that a number of the Asian countries are just trying to get into China's good graces? Yes. <laughs> but what about the ECB? <laughs> I'm not sure the ECB has done it. Has it um, most of the, the ones that I've seen are Asian, various Asian countries, like 10 swap agreements between RMB and various Asian currencies. Um, well, uh, Professor Eichengreen, I understand that you have to leave us and teach a class. So let me just say thank you for joining us today. And thank you for disagreeing. Well, it, it was fun to talk with Ron. Also, <laughs> well, 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 thank you for disagreeing with him. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we continue our discussion with uh, Professor Ron McKinnon. Um, and uh, Ron, it, it seems like there are folks at the People's Bank of China who are quite keen to move forward with the internationalization of their renminbi. So if this is, as you say, not the right thing to do for China right now, why does the Chinese Central Bank want it so badly? Um, well, first, there's the history of China successfully liberalizing its economy, starting about 1978 in goods markets and in current account trade flows and some liberalization, moving generally step by step, as Professor R. Um, Green said, towards greater openness. And this marketization of the economy has been phenomenally successful. Okay? But my view is that this last step of abolishing exchange controls on international capital markets is just a bridge too far and that world interest rates are simply too low to risk that last step. But there's an impetus towards liberalization, which is a plus, but it would be a mistake to do the, the last step. 
in particular, there's this pressure to open up a pilot free trade zone in Shanghai where there will be no restrictions on financial flows one way or another. In uh, uh, 11 square miles from downtown Shanghai, they're going to have this free trade zone. I think that's a terrible idea. Well, but if special economic zones have worked well for China uh, in the past during the beginning of its reform experience, what would be so bad about experimenting in, in the Shanghai Free Trade Zone? Oh, that's when it was done in the context where interest rates were at normal levels in the rest of the world. Um, <clears throat> the Shanghai, China already is free trade in goods and services. And the Shanghai pilot zone would just drill a hole in the capital controls, trying to people trying to bring um, um, financial capital into China, trading dollars for RMB. Be much easier to do it through this Shanghai pilot zone than if you face general capital controls that China has. And and, and what would be wrong with uh, doing it more easily through Shanghai? Well, it distorts. Shanghai is already very wealthy. <laughs> and part of the, the motivation of the party secretary in, China, in Shanghai is to compete with Hong Kong for financial business. Okay, But the well-being of the economy is not the same as the well-being of 2012 square miles in downtown Shanghai. The well-being of the economy is to keep this hot money out and not have inter- domestic interest rates forced down further so you, you you're not optimistic about the prospect of uh, of shanghai catching up to hong kong when it comes to uh the financial markets um i think for internal finance within china shanghai financial sector can do very well <laughs> but what we're concerned with is external finance through the foreign exchanges and i don't think it's worthwhile uh, to give Shanghai a special advantage over any other Chinese city. I, I see, I see. Uh, let's uh, talk about Japan for a minute here. Under Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, Japan has depreciated its currency and adopted an expansionary monetary policy, and that's something you alluded to earlier. What are the likely effects of these measures on China and on other countries like South Korea and the United States? Okay, the uh, facts were that it was about 80 yen to the dollar back in December of 2012. And as we speak, um, the yen has depreciated to about 101 yen to the dollar. So that's about a 25% depreciation. And that's pretty big, actually. As We were talking only about 1% depreciation in China. This is a 25% um, depreciation of the yen. But strangely... Um, I don't disagree with that because back in 19 uh, December 2012, the yen was severely, still severely overvalued from previous episodes of American China bashing to get the uh, Japan bashing to get the yen up. So a 25% devaluation brings Japan to about purchasing power parity with the U.S. and it's more or less balanced. 
What do you think of the likely effects are of Abenomics, the economic policies of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe on countries like South Korea and on China? Yeah, well, Prime Minister Abe was the one that engineered the devaluation. Right, right. Right. And I think, as I say, it's okay because the yen was severely overvalued. And the price level was falling. That's one measure of overvaluation. So they brought it back to a better equilibrium at 100 yen to the dollar. But they shouldn't go any further in devaluation because that would be much like a currency war, getting your currency undervalued to give you an unfair trade advantage. They're both right where they are. Okay. Well, um, on that note, uh, we'd like to thank Professor Ronald McKinnon of Stanford University. Ron, thank you for joining us. Okay. Thank you. It's nice to be here. And and earlier in the segment, we spoke with Professor Barry Eichengreen of the University of California, Berkeley as well. Uh, Well, thank you both. This is China Takes Over the World on RTHK Radio 3, and I am Ying Ma. And as you heard there, China takes over the world. Another edition of that, uh, of course, produced and presented by Ying Ma. Coming up shortly, news at nine, after which Tim Littlechild and friends taking you all the way to lunch at one. Meantime, the latest on the weather front, northeast monsoon persists over the coastal areas of Guangdong. So this morning, cloudy, low visibility, cool morning, uh, up to around 19 degrees by this afternoon, moderate easterly winds, mild, sunny periods. That's a sort of prognosis for the next few days. Currently 15 degrees Celsius, humidity 73%.